Hi, I'm Lorna Meehan, and welcome to Rebel Heroines, a podcast celebrating the rebel heroines of the Greek myths through original audio drama, poetry, book and theatre reviews, and interviews with fellow fans and creatives. In this podcast, the stereotypical and somewhat toxic heroes of the ancient world take a step back as we delve into the stories of the women who shaped their destinies. If you like your Greek myths seen through a feminist lens, enjoy creative adaptations of the classics such as the novels of Natalie Haynes and Madeline Miller, and agree that Hollywood hasn't made a decent movie set in antiquity since the original Clash of the Titans, this is the podcast for you. And welcome to Rebel Heroines, the podcast celebrating the rebel heroines of Greek myth and the women who write about them through original audio drama, poetry, book and theatre reviews and interviews with authors and creatives. In this podcast, the stereotypical toxic heroes of the ancient world take a step back as we delve into the stories of the women who shared their destinies and champion the female authors bringing these nuanced women to life. So, along with a database of Greek myth retelling novels by women, I've also made a Greek myth-inspired playlist you can listen to while you're reading them. Featuring Catherine Priddy, Dead Can Dance, Aurora and ABBA. That's right, ABBA. I'll put the link in the show notes. Enjoy. Just a reminder, last month's guests, Nine Muses Theatre, are now at the Edinburgh Fringe with their Odyssey-inspired musical, Woven. So if you're at the Fringe, check it out. Also check out Forests by Rogue Play Theatre and Cockroach by Elizabeth McGowan. Rebel Heroines is on Twitter. I tweet and retweet on theme goodness, rebel underscore heroines. I've just finished a mini Greek myth retelling novel marathon. I thoroughly enjoyed Atalanta by Jennifer Saint. We'll be talking about Atalanta and her goddess next month. Psyche and Eros by Luna McNamara was a refreshingly romantic tale in this otherwise sometimes quite harrowing genre. We will have a Psyche episode too. Phaedra or The Heroines by Laura Shepperson was an interesting reversal of the Phaedra Hippolytus myth. I'm looking forward to reading Herc, a queer retelling of Hercules. It'd be nice to read a book in this vein with a hero at the centre for once. I'll let you know how I get on with Herc. Just wanted to big up a poetic retelling of Eurydice's life in the underworld by the fantastic poet Ella Frears. She has a great collection out called Shine Darling. Her Eurydice poem is on Bedtime Stories for the End of the World podcast. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Now, just to be clear, I do like the heroes and the gods too, some of them. I think I would have quite liked to go on a date with a centaur back in ancient Greece. A sober one, mind. A teetotal, polite centaur. I would have gone on a date with Chiron. 
there's just something a bit sexy about a horse man. Like if Jason Momoa was a horseman, like a big hulking half horse who is also just like a big cuddly teddy bear personality wise. Like if Chiron was Jason Momoa, I totes would have fancied him. Just saying. This randomness leads us quite nicely into this month's theme. We're meeting the rebel sorceresses of Greek mythology. The magic women, the witches, the ladies with supernatural gifts that made them dangerous, uncontrollable and mysterious. And to get us in the mood, here's a little extract from Wild, my poetic audio drama inspired by Ariadne and, you guessed it, Dionysus. I will be premiering the whole thing via the podcast when it's finished. For now, here's something on theme. This is from the part where Ariadne meets the Bacchae on Naxos and they tell her their tales. Um, They're all women who have been shunned, used, cast aside or punished by the patriarchal societies they have escaped from to come and worship their god. This speech is from a character called the Enchantress, who, though she probably has more in common with the European medieval witch, there's a reason I'm putting this bit here now, because of the first sorceress we're going to meet. I think her plight as a witchy woman is universal. So here is the Enchantress. Witch, they called me. Though my wisdom warded off death, though my herbs healed their war wounds, though my offerings brought them bounty, which they called me, as they chased me, then burned me. Who had brought their babes forth from their screaming wives? Who had asked the gods for rain when drought had thrived? And they rained down their fire upon me. I was burning woman, but not consumed. I was born again when Dionysus seduced the flames to turn on those who made them. And as their flesh burned, I was seen as my true self. Dance Dance death from from your your burning burning bones, bones, he said, and and pull pull the moon moon from the sky sky if it pleases you. Make Make their their fields barren barren as the desert desert, until they bow to your wisdom. wisdom. Woman Woman is the true warrior. Rise and douse the flames of ignorance. Ignite the fire of the wild red dawn. Hail Dionysus, god of the blazing wilderness. That was my work wife and bestie, Kim Wildborn and my friend Ben Jones as Dionysus. More wild to come in the future, and we'll come back to the wild worshippers of Dionysus later on in the episode, because you know I'm loving that D. So, first up, we're going to meet Hecate, goddess of magic, witchcraft, sorcery, necromancy, and crossroads. 
Sometimes she's a virgin maid in appearance. Sometimes she's the old crone. She's probably the most mysterious goddess in all of Greek myth because there's not that many myths about her and she is more witch than goddess. She's not a meddler in human affairs, but she is respected by humans. The other gods and goddesses have powers, power over nature, but Hecate is the only one who uses and controls what we understand as magic of the cauldron brewing variety. She was so powerful, it seems even Zeus was actually afraid of her. She was the only Titan who sided with the Olympians in the Clash of the Titans and as such was the only Titan who was allowed freedom and to retain her powers after the war. She picked the winning side. Did she know in advance with her witchy knowledge how things were going to work out? Hmm, maybe. Zeus is said to have honoured her above all others, giving her more power. And she stuck by the pantheon, fighting against the giants. A goddess so powerful, Zeus lets her keep her ancient power and doesn't try any slimy seduction business with her. If that's all we knew about her, that alone would be enough to make her a pretty badass rebel heroine. He doesn't screw with the fates. He doesn't screw with Hecate. Proof that the dark mother magic, the primordial chaos, the moon energy got the patriarchal hot under the collar and gave him the cold sweats all at the same time, I think. Hecate witnesses the abduction of Persephone and helps Demeter search for her whilst holding aloft two flaming torches, which then became one of her symbols. Fire is scary and seductive and synonymous with witchy women. She's associated with the mystery cults and as you go along, she goes from being a single figure into a triple goddess who can see in all directions. So she isn't sat on Olympus dealing out judgment. I get the impression when she walks into the annual Olympus AGM, they all stop congratulating themselves for five seconds and fall deathly silent as this mysterious, unnerving, unknown quantity strides in, very self-contained, very unfazed, And, you know, they're probably all there looking shiny and fabulous, Aphrodite's in her ball gown. And I get the impression Hecate is just like in an old cloak covered in cobwebs, you know, with all her teeth falling out and that she just doesn't give a shit. And they all feel a shiver up their spine before they get back to bragging and shagging. So she becomes a companion to Persephone, Queen of the Dead, in the underworld, and she accumulates hellhounds, the keys to Tartarus, and a reputation for being reclusive rather than prominent. Before the Pantheon turned up, it was said she had power over the earth and seas and the heavens. That's a lot of power. A lot of awe associated with the Titan goddess who got out from under Zeus's heel. The fact that she was packing a punch before the Big 12 came along and that she's still prominent today in terms of her embodying the maid, mother, crone, triple goddess symbols we see in pagan New Age Wiccan circles is proof that her symbology is timeless, endlessly fascinating, a representation of the world under the world. 
the dark side of the moon, the murky waters, the liminal space that solar symbology, masculine energy is inextricably linked to and can't control that must find a balance with it. Because despite every attempt at quashing it, see medieval witch hunts, see Salem, see modern politics, divine feminine magic isn't going anywhere and has had a big resurgence that kind of parallels this resurgence of Greek mythology feminist retellings. I don't think it's an accident. Hecate has a nice scene in the TV show Sandman, which I mentioned in a previous episode. The Lord of Dreams has to entreat her in her all-knowing wisdom if he wants to get his power back. We meet her in Macbeth. Not every version of Macbeth. Sometimes it's just the three witches. But even then, they are all essentially a different face of Hecate. So terrified was James I of witchcraft that had Hecate's part in that play been anything other than malevolent, old Shaky might have got his head on a spike. She makes a pivotal appearance in Psyche and Eros as a cauldron-brewing crone who decides to risk the wrath of the Pantheon in the name of love. What I like about her and the witchy women of Greek mythology in general is that she can give and she can take away, but it's all on her own terms. She's not doing Zeus's bidding. She doesn't go around killing women who say they're prettier than her. She's a solitary figure and seems to prefer it that way. It seems her siding with Zeus when it came down to her kind or his kind, that she didn't give her power away but found a way to retain it with compromise. She was a ruthless survivor, but not without compassion for other women. There is always more to the witch than meets the eye. She is a woman first, and this brings us nicely to... Circe. Circe is the daughter of Helios, the titan sun god, and an ocean nymph. This is something I have been looking forward to since I started this podcast. The chance to big up my favourite book in this genre and one of my favourite books ever. Circe by Madeline Miller. A seminal text. If you've not read it yet, don't tell anyone. The shame, the shame. Just kidding. Read it. It's awesome. Because in it, we get Circe's backstory before and after the events of the Odyssey. There are going to be some spoilers in this bit because I really want to get into this book because, like I said, I love it. She's a nymph, very low on the pecking order, and had she not stepped out of line, she might well have just faded into obscurity. But she gets herself into trouble... She gets spurned, there's rivalry and jealousy and payback. She gets banished to an island. She gets a rep for turning men into pigs. Then one day, a brave hero turns upon her doorstep in his quest to get back home to his loving, dutiful wife, Penelope. Yes, it's that wily Odysseus again. Circe is one of many powerful women he meets on his adventures and... He shacks up with her for a good few years before setting off for home via the underworld, which he navigates because of Circe's knowledge. She is a pivotal gatekeeper in his story. 
But in this book, we get to find out Cersei's side of the story and what she was all about before the big hero turned up. We meet in Cersei a much more familiar woman than the archetypal Greek nymph or seductress or sexy enchantress. We meet the lonely goddess. We meet a Cersei who grows up in passive terror of her emotionally unavailable titan father, nymph mother, power-hungry siblings. She finds kinship with a mortal man, but because he's mortal, he's going to die. So she tries to use what little power she has to make him a god. It backfires. Her exile to the island is harrowing because we feel her absolute solitude, now made worse by her actual solitude. She magics up animals to be her companions and she uses her endless hours alone to work on her magic. She picks herbs, she experiments... And when a gang of men come along and she naively welcomes them, she learns that she needs her magic to defend herself. She has a brief respite from her exile when her sister Pacifae sends for her to help her birth her minotaur baby. We see how Pacifae, though still power hungry, is still just as trapped as her sister. Cersei gets to meet a fellow curious mind in the form of Daedalus, which is a nice touch. We get a glimpse of the potential of a young Ariadne. We see how Cersei, despite being treated pretty shittily by everyone, still has empathy, but also still has ego. She works for her power. Madeline Miller talked about how Cersei's witchcraft is not Shazam and she gets everything she wants. She messes up. It takes time. She uses it for her own gratification and it bites back. She uses it for good and there's a different outcome. She doesn't have to be totally gracious for us to empathise with her. When Odysseus turns up, they are well matched, but of course, she is the exotic other woman. She is the necessary affair he couldn't say no to. It's not my fault, she's just so intimidating, blah, blah, blah. She knows their time is up. She makes it so he can move forward into the unknown and get home to his honourable wife. She's heartbroken, she's enraged, she's back where she started, alone on the island. She is resigned to her fate. We want something nice to happen for her. Then one day, Penelope and Telemachus, who has finally grown up and got over himself, come to visit and we learn that the Odysseus Penelope remembers is not the man who came back. We see how much these two women have in common. They both had to go it alone. They both had to be duplicitous to defend themselves. We see how they've both consistently been disappointed by men who are all about ego. And, well, what happens after that is satisfying though unexpected and is actually based on an alternative myth, which was a surprise. Read this book if you love this genre. It's about a woman who, though exiled, gets to hone and craft and use her power to change her destiny. Who gets to go on an adventure on her own terms. It's a very different, more complex version of Circe than the one we meet in the Odyssey. Who, though she has the power to turn men into pigs, kneels before him in awe and wonder, according to him. Unreliable narrator, methinks. 
There is going to be a TV series based on Cersei. I am also an actor, Madeline. Just putting that out there. Who would be a good Cersei? Hmm. I see Saoirse Ronan. What do you think? Here's another poetic interlude inspired by another group of misunderstood witchy women from the Odyssey. The Sirens. Here is Siren by the awesome poet Claire Tedstone. song was never a call for men to fall at her feet, or Finn, and meet their grim end? What if they didn't intend shipwreck and despair, and history has been unfair in its depiction, twisting its description, creating a fiction of a female? An evil temptress who lures in males with enchantment, when in reality, all she meant to do was be herself, to soar free, to sing her story. But history is his story, written by his hand. So of course it was her fault that he sailed off course to explore the source of the beautiful sound and ran aground. He had no choice but to follow the voice of the terrible temptress. It was her magical power and plans to devour his soul that caused his whole crew to be drowned when he turned his ship around and smashed it into rock. It definitely had nothing to do with him using his cock as a compass and making a massive fucking mess in the pursuit of trying to possess a beauty that did not belong to him. That singing siren had no idea what had happened until a limp body drifted towards her. She dragged it from the waters trying desperately to breathe life into the body. Eventually, he coughed and spluttered and deliriously muttered incomprehensible words. She managed to decipher some snippets she heard. (coughs) The captain, he coughed. (coughs) The beautiful voice (coughs) couldn't stop him. Haunted her for himself. (coughs) The noise. What was that crash? The ship. It's going down. So much water. So much water everywhere. It's It's okay, okay, she says. I can can help help you. you. He closed his eyes and began to hum a melody that she recognised immediately. Such a beautiful song, he whispered to himself as he drifted into sleep. She began to weep uncontrollably, inconsolable as she realised that she had been the source of the sound that caused the ship to run aground. Frantically, she swam the sea, searching desperately for any other survivors. She found no signs of life, just the wreckage of the ship. Her search was in vain, and the pain was unbearable. Blaming herself, she silenced her song, thinking it was wrong to ever sing again. They would see her, the silent siren, 
sitting on the rocks where the ship was wrecked, trying to save the wreckage of herself by writing. Always writing. Great poem, great poet. That is Claire Tedstone. There will be links in the show notes. So we're going to finish with probably the most complex woman and most demonised sorceress in Greek mythology, Medea. She's the daughter of Circe's brother, a pretty ruthless sorcerer in his own right. He has the golden fleece in his possession. Jason, another arrogant prick of a hero, needs Medea's magic to complete his quest and get the fleece for his own glory. And he then starts to underestimate and disregard her the instant her power stops getting him what he wants. That old chestnut again. She chooses Jason. She helps him with her very potent magic. She makes a salve that makes him impervious to fire so he can yoke some fireballs. She charms the serpent that guards the fleece. And of course, later on, after she runs away from her oppressive family, she can then be accused of charming Jason and bringing about his ruin as it all slowly falls apart. She is conflicting for us because she has every right to her rage. She has true dangerous power. She uses it to help the man she loves. He then dumps her, leaves her a vulnerable refugee. Her power is all she has to save herself. She tells her only ally that she can magic him up some children in his anguished fatherless state, and she probably can. We're on her side right up until the moment she starts murdering people. She murders his new wife, then kills her own children to spite her husband, who has cast her aside for the younger, wealthier, less problematic woman he ideally should have married all along, had he not saddled himself with a foreign sorceress who saved his life. When you kill a man's kids and his vessel to have more in Greek culture, you kill his future. She knows it will break him. And you know, it's satisfying to see Jason broken because he's an arsehole. He's right up there with Perseus, Theseus, I am the big I am. But the price is his dead children. At the time, they would have seen Medea as a demonic, evil woman, this symbol of the fear of a woman's capacity for violence. When men killed, it was for heroism, defence, glory. When women killed, it was unnatural, unnerving. And in the case of Medea, you totally understand that fear. How can a mother do such a thing? For a Greek tragedy, the original gives its female protagonist a lot of complexity, a lot of empathy. It's not Jason wailing for five hours. It's about the woman he wronged, but she's by no means being let off the hook. It's a great example of Greek tragedy as a journey into the traumatised psyche. I think that's why it's endured, despite its very violent conclusion. We have the option in modern retellings to show Medea as a woman who is psychologically traumatised, rather than just being a symbol of a woman to be demonised. 
Her power can remove a lot of obstacles, but it can't make her husband any less of a prick or change society's perception of her as the other, the foreigner. Right when she needs it most, she sees the limits of her power. She only really has her wits, her anger, her knowledge of poison, her manipulation of men, her children to use as weapons. She's put under extreme pressure from a hostile society in which she is an outcast. She is abandoned by the only person she has left in the world to give her security. In the deep throes of passionate rage, she makes a fatal decision. She allows the full capacity of her dark magic to take over. We don't excuse her, but we can understand her better. I saw the late Helen McCrory play her at the National Theatre. The setting was modern, but also had this kind of timeless quality. It could have been anywhere. Jason wasn't really worth the hint she had for him. And at first, this didn't work for me. I needed to see how all this hint was once passion. Otherwise, why would she bother with him? Then I realised... That's what actually made it work. He wasn't worth it. Still, still, he doesn't deserve to have his children killed. We see a Medea grappling with the conflict and she splits herself in two. She distances herself from her compassion. She forced herself to do it and regretted it, Lady Macbeth style. The image I've used for this month's episode is a pre-Raphaelite painting of Medea and I love it because we see the moment the transformation happens. We see her conflict. She's scared of herself and full of hate all at once. We can't forgive her, especially since she gets away with it. In the original, there's not really this sense that she's broken. She's triumphant. And it's a very masculine way of looking into the depths of Medea and drawing out the worst part of a woman's volatile nature. In this version, and in another version I'm going to talk about shortly, we have a different stance on why some women would kill their children, not as a symbol of their evil but as a reaction to their severely compromised mental and emotional health. And let's face it, this subject matter is not confined to the theatre. It's something that happens in our reality. We just don't want to know. I saw a great production called Medea Electronica at the Fringe a few years ago. And it was a great Medea because we never see Jason or the children. It's just her and some musicians making a very evocative 80s electronica synth soundtrack. The other characters are just voices, the voices in her head. We feel like we are in Medea's head as she unravels. Jason has played her all along. He is a high flyer businessman who is secretly gay and waiting for his dad to die to announce his true self. He married Medea and had kids to secure his inheritance. And there were moments where you thought, you know what, girl, I totally get it. But it's because we didn't have to see the physical victims on stage, the actual consequences, that we were lulled into the anti-heroine's plight. It made me feel very complicit because I empathised. It was a genius way of doing Medea. Did anyone see Sophie Okonedo playing her? If so, let me know. How was it? How did her Medea make you feel? 
There was a company that I shall not name who did a version where it wasn't Medea who killed the children. Jason's new family had them killed to get the rival heirs out of the way. She was framed to get rid of her. On the one hand, yeah, it could have all been propaganda because there's no coming back from that. But on the other hand, let's not rob women of their complexity and nuance. Let them do horrible things. Let them be wicked because whether we like it or not, some women do horrible things. This is the real world. I'm not saying we should revere the women who use their power to punch down or to kill, but we should see them as people, not stereotypes right for demonising. We should look at how patriarchal structures drive them to desperate actions. I know I've reviewed it already, but do read Savage Beasts. It's more proof that even though Medea is seen as this monstrous other, this cautionary tale, you could nevertheless put her in any time period, any context, and she would fit because her trajectory is proof of what any woman could do at any time when society cranks up the pressure from all sides and assumes obedience. So, before we wrap up, I just want to do a quick shout out to the Bacchae, the Maynads. I did a Maynad poem in episode one, my Ariadne episode. Check it out if you haven't listened yet. You know who these girls are into. Dionysus. That's right. The worshippers of the twice-born god who would tell the patriarchy to do one, go up on the mountainside, get naked, get wild, get drunk, shag centaurs, and for a blissful moment of communion with their god, forget their oppression. Ancient Greece's first witch covens. And you wonder whether all the stuff about tearing animals and men to pieces is true, or whether patriarchal Greece was so scared of even the idea of women even leaving the house that they made one festival out of the year, one night on a mountain, dancing around with wild abandon, a prerequisite to murder. There's a great podcast called The Goddess Project with an episode dedicated to this very subject. I'll put a link in the show notes. All these sorceresses have power that make men scared of them, in awe of them, that help them protect themselves from them. They can do good with it, they can do bad with it, and why shouldn't they? They are in touch with Mother Earth in a way that men and gods can't understand. They are comfortable with their own darkness. They are not afraid of the void. And sometimes the stuff they do is shocking and violent and scares us. But then... The gods do the same, their progeny do the same. You don't get justice as a witchy woman in ancient Greece unless you make it. There's definitely similarities between these three women. I mean, they all have quite turbulent family relationships. Hecate betrayed the Titans in favour of the new gods, but is not quite one of them. She's on the outskirts of their world. Circe is banished by her family for wielding power that it's okay for them to use, but not her. Same with Medea. She oversteps the boundary and throws in her lot with a stranger. 
They all have fear, abandonment and mistrust in their collective backstories. They also have this solitary, world-against-them-going-it-alone energy. But they also have solidarity with other women in the same plight. Hecate becoming Persephone's companion, Medea comes to her aunt Circe to be cleansed for the murder of her brother. Imagine if all three of them got together with the Bacchae and the Sirens and decided to take down Olympus. Imagine that. These sorceresses, these sirens, these Bacchae really show a progression from neutral, primordial, divine magic into practical witchcraft right through to full-blown wickedness. You see these dark goddesses personified in characters like Maleficent. You see the sexy enchantress all over fantasy culture. See Melisandre from Game of Thrones, Morgan Le Fay from the Arthurian mythology. On the subject of Morgan Le Fay, I highly recommend Mists of Avalon by Marion Zimmer Bradley for the King Arthur myth fans because it's from the perspectives of all the women with Morgaine as the heroine. Great book. These archetypes come back again and again, but it's rare to see them fleshed out, rare to see how they acquire, work for and nurture their power. Let's explore these women more, look deeper into what scares us about them, into what motivates them. They may seem very far away from us, quite fantastical, but how would the world look if we all embraced our natural power the way they do? New Age culture, pagan spirituality, it can sound a bit woo-woo, but there is a lot to respect and resonate. Get grounded in Mother Nature, question your own nature, find authenticity, tap into your innate power. These sorceresses represent women who didn't apologise for their power and didn't ask anyone's permission to use it. And neither should you. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do share it with others. You can like and subscribe. You can tweet me. You can listen to my playlist. Next month, we meet the warrior women. Atalanta, Artemis, Penthesilea. So polish your breastplates and count your arrows because we're going hunting.